right, good morning, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? I gotta, I, I gotta just echo, I am so proud of our graduates, uh, so proud of uh, their families. I recognize that, uh, we recognize, right, that graduates don't get to that finish line on their own, that it really takes, uh, takes all of us. And so we're so proud of all of you. We're praying for all of you. We're thankful for your families. We're proud of your families. Before we jump into the Bible today, I just want to mention one thing. Some of you I know have uh, heard this already, but uh, for those that haven't, I just want to make sure you're in the loop, and I want to cover it with you in, in prayer. Um, some of you may have heard Mary Kirkham had a heart attack yesterday um, and is uh, in the hospital um, today, and so we just want to pray, uh, pray for Mary and pray for uh, God to work powerfully and, and for God to be honored in all that happens and pray for Jack as well and the rest of the family just that they would have um, God's comfort as they walk through this season and seek uh, what is best for Mary so would you pray with me Father God we thank you for uh, the friendship that we have with uh, Jack and Mary Kirkham and we thank you for the way they truly are uh, family to us and Jesus we lift them to you we lay them at your feet Jesus we know that um that they are yours, and we know that you want what's best for them in this situation, and so, Lord, we pray for whatever it is that is best for Mary, and whatever it is that would be your will be done. Lord, we love her. We pray ultimately for healing in her body. We pray that you would sustain and carry Jack and Mary both through this season, help them to know that we are with them, that we love them, and... Uh, more than anything, I pray that they'd have a very keen awareness of your presence. I pray for Mary's doctors, that you would give them all the wisdom they need to make the best, uh, the very best decisions they can. And I pray that uh, you would be honored and glorified by all that happens. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that uh, we get to carry each other's burdens in this way. What a privilege to be part of the family of God together. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. And we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's the thing. We're going to continue. We're going to jump right back in today into uh, scripture, into our series, Soul Detox. We've been talking about how Jesus brings cleansing to the soul. And uh, we spent significant time, actually, on ourselves and the need to be changed from the inside out. Today, I want to talk about detoxing our religion. And I have a very specific reason for that. I can't tell you the number of stories I've heard over the years. In fact, some of you have told me these stories where people have walked away from church or there was a season in your life where you walked away from church because of something that was done by a church. Because, because church people were hypocritical, because... Because someone who was a person of God told lies. Because someone you looked up to <laughs> was very hurtful and demeaning. Because, because pride often in at least some religious circles wins the day. Because people put themselves on pedestals. Because people became judgmental of others while justifying their own sins along the way. Where people were rule mongers caring far more about the rules than they did about the people that they were challenging the rules to. 
I know person after person who said, I was treated this way in a church, and it was detrimental to faith. Now, anybody besides me heard those stories? Yeah, some of you experienced those stories? For sure, for sure. And you know, churches are made up of flawed human beings who worship a perfect Savior. And so I would just challenge us, if we're looking for an excuse to give up on Jesus or an excuse to give up on church, you will always, always find it because we are flawed. But that being the case, we still want to recognize that Jesus did more than just start a religion, if you will, that in his time, he spent most of his corrective energies talking to the people who were ultra-religious but who completely missed the heart of God. There was a moment later in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you might open them with me. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, a little bit of Matthew chapter 10 in just a moment, but Matthew 9 primarily. But later in Matthew, Matthew 23, I think, Jesus calls these religious leaders of his day hypocrites, frauds, blind guides, blind fools, blind men. He said they're full of wickedness. They were snakes. He called them a brood of vipers. You know, Jesus, Jesus was not vague in this moment. Kind of interestingly, when he spoke to his disciples, he, he was sometimes vague enough that they would go, what is he talking about? But in this blunt moment, he was not vague at all. So with that in mind, I want to bring us to Scripture to Matthew chapter 9, and I want to read a story to you that, that might be familiar to you, or if the Bible's new to you, then the story might be <laughs> new to you as well. It's in Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to begin in verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now again, if this is all new to you, you might notice that um, where we're reading from, the, the letter, the the, the the biography of Jesus we're reading from in the story of Scripture here is written by a guy named Matthew. Interestingly, it's the same guy. So he saw this guy named Matthew. He was sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, right there, that moment should make you pause and go, oh. So this is a guy who thought nobody loved him. I mean, I... I sort of assume when the IRS knocks on your door, it's not a very good feeling. Now, in their day, add to it that he was collecting taxes for the Romans. And you would begin to get the feeling that Matthew, whose, whose other name is Levi, so he's a very Jewish man, but by his people was considered to be a sellout. Was considered by his people to be someone who has sold his soul to the devil in a sense. That he was a sellout to their religion. That he was a sellout to their country. That he was a sellout to their people. And they would have seen Matthew culturally as someone who certainly didn't really have a love for Israel's, for the Jewish God. And Jesus sees this man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth, and he told him, follow me, which was a direct call to be a disciple of Jesus. 
And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, now, now dinner goes a little further than just saying, follow me. Dinner says, I want to be intimate with you. I want to dine with you. I, in their culture, particularly, a, a dinner in a home represented sort of intimate fellowship. Some sense of really wanting to be close to a person. As Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they ate with him, and they saw his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, it's sort of interesting. Did you know that when you have dinner, that you're on full display? Right? When the Pharisees saw this, so they've been watching Jesus, apparently, and they watched Jesus call a tax collector to follow him, somebody the people would have despised, and frankly, somebody they would have despised. And they would have looked at themselves in the mirror and said, well, God loves us because we're so good, and God couldn't possibly love this man because he's a sellout. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and Get the word here. Sinners. Why, why does he eat with these people? Doesn't, 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 doesn't he know what they're like? I mean, doesn't he know that God should want to be friends with people like us who are so good, not with people like them that are so bad? People like us who aren't sinners and people like them who are, that, that God should... If Jesus was all these things he claims to be, wouldn't, shouldn't Jesus want to get to know us because we're so holy and separate himself from people like them because they're so not holy? This was their mindset. I'm not saying it was a right mindset. I'm just saying it was their mindset. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Actually, makes some sense. But go and learn what this means. He quotes Hosea chapter 6 to them. That I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So I guess here's the question I want to ask. Because this story gives us an incredible contrast. The contrast between tax collectors and sinners and, and <laughs> the ultra-religious, who frankly are sinners as well, but they don't know it. And the question I want to ask today, if you're taking notes, is how can a church, how can our church, how can any church avoid the dark underside of toxic religion? Because religion can go toxic, certainly, and you've all experienced it. That there can be a dark sort of underbelly of religion that can become very detrimental, very destructive, if you will. So how can a church avoid that dark underside of toxic religion? I have four ways for us today, and I hope we would embrace all of them. But I promise you, they're going to challenge you a little bit. Number one, how can a church avoid the dark underside of toxic religion? We realize that Jesus has always loved people far from God. Always. And let's keep loving them too. That, that's been the essence of Jesus. Jesus has always had a heart for people far from God. This is why we talk about loving Jesus and loving people and loving the world. 
This is why we spend a lot of energies thinking about how we invest in the community around us. It's why we think so much about the people of the nations and how we take the gospel to them. It's why we spend energy challenging you to have people in your life that you're praying for to invite and come and be a part of what we're doing here at Harvest Community Church. It's why we've extended our ministry online. It's why we're continuing to make investments in the ability to speak the technological language of the culture around us because people far from God matter to Jesus. And that word is powerful. But it's not how the Pharisees saw it. The Pharisees would have looked at these tax collectors and sinners and thought, you know, riffraff, like, like exposed, like, like expendable, like, like, come on, God doesn't really love people like that, does he? He loves people like us, because, you know, we're his favorite, because we're so good, because we're better than they are. And in that thought, they expose everything that becomes sort of toxic about that underbelly of religion. Now, Matthew, in his gospel, if you read it in one sitting, you'll discover that Matthew highlights over and over and over how Jesus goes after the outcast, how Jesus includes uh, people who would have been left out by society, how Jesus was intentional about reaching people who are far from God. And I think Matthew included all of that in his gospel because he was one of those people. And he wanted everybody to know that God cares about you too. That you are never beyond the love of God. That you are never beyond the reach of God. And that if you've ever thought to yourself, God couldn't possibly love me because I'm so broken or I'm so hurt. Or for that matter, I'm so hurting. I'm so destructive. I'm, so, I'm such a horrible person. If you've ever thought God couldn't possibly love me, Jesus loves people who are far from God, who are far from him. And the reality in this story is that we're all far from God if you think about it. At the gap between each of us and each other and the gap between us and Jesus if you want to talk the gap of holiness, I am far more like you than I am like Jesus. Is that fair? And so Matthew gathers his friends around, the outcasts, the, the criminals, the hoodlums, probably the prostitutes of their day. We know that there were many who followed Jesus from various lifestyles, the outcasts, the outlaws, the outsiders, just the kind of people that that churches sometimes try to avoid. Jesus intentionally goes over to Matthew's house and has this dinner, and he's fraternizing with these disreputable people. And the Pharisees want nothing to do with it. Jesus, of course, corrects them, which we'll get into as we go through this. But the key for us is to recognize that we always want to be a church who loves people far from God. That we must commit to be a place. Because if not, then we become that dark underside of religion where we say we're good enough for God, but nobody else is. And friends, the whole thing's about grace. It's not about being good enough for God. If it was about being good enough for God, I promise you, zero of us would be sitting or standing here today. 
Jesus has always loved people far from God. Let's keep loving them too. Number two, how do we avoid the dark underside of toxic religion? We recognize that, that religion gone bad turns the stomach of Jesus. That literally, it makes Jesus want to vomit. And I'm not going to say let's vomit, but I am going to say let's reject it too. The religion gone bad turns the stomach of Jesus. Let's reject it as well. If you think religion, when it goes south, when it goes bad, turns your stomach, I don't want you to worry because, because for Jesus, it's a stomach turner as well. Jesus told story after story that would reflect this, but I think about a particular parable he told. He said two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. And he said, God, I thank you. I'm not like the other men. I'm not like robbers and evildoers and adulterers or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. The tax collector stood at a distance, would not even, bless you, would not even look up to God, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You can't read Matthew 23 without getting the sense that religious fraud gets under the skin of Jesus. That when people are full of pride and judgment, again, this doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't call sin sin and that we can't talk about sins as though they're wrong. But it does mean that if we begin to get an atmosphere and create, create an atmosphere that says that we're all better than everybody else, and we're just going to kind of huddle away from everybody else because we're better than they are, that we're not a church, we're a country club, and there's something wrong with that. Of course, I love that Harvest is not that kind of place. We have always said that Harvest would be a church for people who aren't always church people, right? That Harvest would always have that heart. And I just want us to realize that if we ever begin to go there, that that's what we want to reject. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, the tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And the Pharisees asked, Where did you why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, on hearing this, said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The key here is that the tax collectors and sinners knew they were sick. Knew they needed a doctor. Knew that they didn't have it all figured out. Knew that they needed forgiveness. Knew that, that they didn't deserve to be loved by God. But it would be miraculous if Jesus wanted to love them. It's interesting that he quotes in verse 13, Hosea 6, 6, that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. If you go back and read the book of Hosea, which is a, a, just a crazy, crazy prophet of the Lord. The story is, it basically says to Hosea, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute who's not going to be faithful to you. And Hosea says, okay, and he does, and she's not. And God uses that to say, here's how love works. Here's what my love is like. But in Hosea's day, those words, I desire mercy, we're not sacrifice, were, religious, were written, were spoken to people who were, who were religious frauds as well. And Jesus is essentially calling these Pharisees 
with this phrase, religious frauds. And he is saying that God desires mercy, not religious ritual, that he desires love and grace, which those two words together would kind of represent this word that Hosea uses here, this word kessed. That, that love and mercy and grace are at the heart of who God is and that God is not about religious ritual. Now, in the end, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea 6.6 6 goes on to say acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I, I just have you realize Jesus actually fulfills all of that. Jesus is mercy. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is God, not just the acknowledgement of God. And the bottom line at the end of the day is that I need him, but I can only come to him when I realize that Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to start a relationship. That he's the showcase of God's mercy and that he is the mercy of God for me, given to me. And when Jesus says, go and learn what this means, right? That <laughs> I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he says, for I have not come to call righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus is making himself the I that's quoted in Hosea 6 that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He is saying in this verse that he is God in the flesh. And they were deeply offended by this. In the end, this means that I simply need to admit that I am broken, that I am sick. That I need to reject those worst things of religion, the hypocrisy, the exclusiveness, the country club mentality, the judgmentalism and the justification of your own sin, the self-focus and self-fulfilling righteousness that's self-righteous, the, the putting ourselves on pedestals and the handcuffs that bind people up and tell people that they have to be like this while we don't have to follow those rules. The gatekeeping that says, hey, I get to decide who's in and who's out. That all of that underbelly of religion is something we should just reject. Because at the end of the day, he desires mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus was both of those things on our behalf. That he didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. <laughs> As Paul would have said, of whom I am the worst. How do we avoid the dark underside of toxic religion? Number three, we recognize that Jesus challenges our deepest assumptions as his purpose was personal, not political. That Jesus challenges the deep assumptions within us as his purpose was personal, not political. And so let's live for his kingdom come. There's a lot going on in the story that you don't get when you first read it. You first read it, it just appears to be about irreligious people and religious people. And Jesus is hanging out with people who are far from God. And you, Okay, that, that's really good. And it's good to see that Jesus loves everybody and Jesus, Jesus loves people far from God. Okay, I got it. He called Matthew, a tax collector, to follow him. Maybe he called me to follow him too. Which he does. But if you really read between the lines here, there's much, much, much more going on in the story. We're just beginning to get a sense of these Pharisees and how they opposed all of what Jesus was doing in his ministry. That it was these same Pharisees who gathered together with other religious leaders who were responsible later for the crucifixion of Jesus. 
It's these same Pharisees who would have thought to themselves, well, God cares about good Jewish people and only good Jewish people. Jesus was challenging that assumption. And if you read all of the Gospel of Matthew or all of any of the Gospels for that matter, you cannot come to the conclusion that God only loves certain people. There were many assumptions that they were challenging here. Jesus was challenging what people think God is like because the Pharisees would have said, God is like this, and they would have defined him a certain way and had a box they put him in. They couldn't put Jesus in a box. Jesus was challenging who people think God loves. Jesus was challenging the kind of people that can follow God, the kind of people that can fill the kingdom, the kind of people that can fill churches. Jesus was challenging the kind of people who can be leaders in his church. Matthew, follow me. Right? He's saying, I'll I'll make you not a taker, but a giver. Not a taker of gold, but a giver of salvation. Jesus was challenging what the religious would think of sinners For that matter, what the religious would think of themselves, that I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And he was basically saying to these Pharisees, you need to do what the sinners are doing. Not the sinning, but the recognition that they need God. He was challenging what tax collectors and sinners think of God, and which people are righteous and which people are not righteous. And at the end of the day, really... If you read the Gospels, he was challenging everything they thought about their own national identity. What they thought about their own national politics. And this gets challenging. Because if we're honest, we have to recognize that each of us brings a particular perspective to the table. When we come to the Lord's table, I don't have a Lord's table here, but we're not celebrating the Lord's Supper or communion this morning. But when we come to Jesus, we don't come and say, look at my national politics or my national identity. We don't come and say, look at my spiritual superiority. We don't come and say, my kind are love and those kind are not. We don't come and say, our kind are all perfect. In fact, when we come, we really, there are not kinds. There are sinners, and there's a perfect person in the story. There's only one perfect person in the story. That leaves, (laughs) the Pharisees would have said, but we're the righteous. He said, no, you're not. There's only one righteous. I would certainly have us recognize at the end of the day that people in Jesus' day expected a Messiah. But let's be straight, they expected a political Messiah. Much like you hear in American life today. We often expect a deliverance for a kingdom that looks very much like a nation. In Jesus' day, people thought that when the Messiah came, that he would bring deliverance from Rome. And I simply want to show you that Jesus is clear in this story and clear throughout the rest of his teaching. That he didn't come to bring deliverance from Rome, he came to bring deliverance from sins. That if they thought the Romans were a problem, that they had a bigger problem they were facing.
that Jesus, at the end of the day, didn't come to be a political Messiah. He came to be a personal one and that he would start a kingdom that would start with a personal relationship with God. And that personal relationship with God was to be extended to every other human being. Not just Jewish people, not just male people. Male. It sounded like I was talking about the post office. Right? Certainly in Jewish thought, he wasn't coming for just white people. They weren't white. They certainly weren't evangelical Republicans or left-leaning Democrats. If you think that we're the only people to have left and right, you've got to understand politics in their day. The Pharisees were, among other things, a political group in national Jewish thought. And there were several of those groups. And Jesus spoke powerfully to them and corrected what was wrong with their group. They were, the, I, I, they were the religious right of their day. But there were other groups as well. There were Sadducees. The Sadducees were the religious left of their day. You say, what are you talking about? The Sadducees basically said, you know what? We, that miracle stuff, like, like God doesn't really do stuff like that. Like that stuff's not real. The Sadducees really only believe in the first five books of the Bible. That there was much they rejected about what the Pharisees taught, but they also thought they were God's favorites. They, they sort of sold themselves out as well to the Romans because that gave them political power. And Jesus didn't come and say, this group is right and this group is wrong. He came and said, this group is wrong and that group is wrong and that group is wrong and that group is wrong. And at the end of the day, Jesus said, look, we're all broken, sinful people. And Jesus is going to challenge our deepest assumptions and I would say the way we avoid that dark underside of toxic religion is not to seek our kingdom come, but his kingdom come. To live for a king and a kingdom that is bigger than ourselves and our perspectives. Not only did they have Pharisees and Sadducees, the sort of right and left, they had Essenes. Essenes were people who would say, you know what, we just reject all of it. We're going to withdraw from society. Right? And so the Essenes withdrew from Jewish society so that they could be holy on their own. They, right, they, they would be the, the sort of Quakers of their day or the, those who would pull back from culture and say, we don't want to keep going where culture is going. We're just going to be holy on our own. It was those Essenes that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've heard of those, because they were in a community living out in isolation Apart from everybody else, there were in their day uh, political people of certain political persuasion were called zealots. These zealots are interesting. They're zealots because they're zealous. But they were the extremists of their day. They were zealous. People were called zealous because, because they thought people who were sinful enough, people who sold out to the Romans, Deserve not to live. That they were zealous enough to kill people in the name of God. The zealots. And Jesus corrects all of those folks. 
And at the end of the day, he calls them all, not to a political persuasion, but to a personal relationship with God. And he begins to expect that that personal relationship with God is going to challenge all their assumptions about how they see life. And it's going to challenge all of their assumptions about how they see other people. And so in the end, he came to be a personal Messiah, not a political Messiah. And I think one of the greatest prayers we can pray is his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But when praying that prayer, we're basically saying to Jesus, Jesus, show me where my eyes are to my kingdom focused and not enough of your kingdom focused. When we pray that prayer, we're saying, Jesus, open my eyes to where my heart is closed. When we pray that prayer, we're saying, Jesus, I need to learn to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. This is specifically why we don't align harvest or Christianity with any political party in an American sense or any other country sense for that matter. That Jesus would speak truth to all political parties very prophetically. That Jesus would call people from all political persuasions to follow him. Right, left, center, far, far of either side. Even, even not American politics at all. Jesus would call people to follow him from all kinds of different thinking. And he challenges our assumptions, our perspectives. But in the end, Jesus didn't come to bring power to us but to bring a personal revolution. Which leads me to one more thing. How do we avoid the toxic underside of religion? We recognize, number four, that Jesus still makes friends out of religious and political enemies. And so let's love like he still does. That Jesus still makes friends out of religious and political enemies. That implies... That he always has made friends out of religious and political enemies. Not just that he is friends with them, but he makes them into friends with each other. So I would have you survey church in America on any given Sunday. And what you will find is this group gathered over here with people who were like them. And this group gathered over there with people who were like them. Is that the American church? Still the most divided, segregated time in American life. Interesting thing Jesus does here is he goes to Matthew's house and he hangs out with these tax collectors and sinners. And he is slowly but persuasively drawing some Pharisees to himself as well. In fact, some Pharisees later follow him. And become followers of Jesus. But they do it somewhat secretly because, because giving up their kingdom would be too difficult of a thing to think about. But there's something even more powerful going on in the story. I mentioned just a second ago, right, that, that tax collectors were thought to be people who sold their soul to the Romans. And that Jesus called uh, people from a variety of political persuasions to follow him. And I mentioned zealots. The zealots were the extremists of their day that would kill in the name of God. Zealots would kill people like Matthew. That literally, if they saw the opportunity, they would consider it as doing a favor for God. If they had the opportunity by taking the life of someone like Matthew. Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. 
showing that his life matters, that he has value, that God cares about him. But you don't have to go far to get this. Turn your, turn your Bible like a page. In my, in my Bible, literally, it's, it's one page. Your Bible, it might be one or two. It might even be on the same page. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. Matthew 10.1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to them. He gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal, heal every disease and sickness. And these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. You might have heard of him, right? Guy always puts his foot in his mouth. His brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, right? Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew's just going to highlight that again, right? They didn't just call Matthew. He called Matthew the tax collector. And Thomas. And, and don't forget James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Zealots hate tax collectors. And I would guess that tax collectors hate zealots. So when Jesus says to his disciples, love one another, that's what really matters. That all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When Jesus says, Lord, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. When Jesus says, no, really, lay down your life for each other, love one another, he wasn't giving them a theory. He was taking something that would have been impossibly difficult to do and challenging them to do this with God in their life, to let God change them. Can you imagine that? That sort of first gathering. I don't know if Simon the Zealot was called before Matthew or Matthew before Simon the Zealot, but either of them would have felt amazingly uncomfortable. Jesus says, follow me. And there's like, you know, 12 of them in Jesus, and they're looking around and they're going, wait, I know you. I'm not sure I'm comfortable around you. Jesus has always taken religious and political enemies and made love the thing that bridges the gap. So let's love like that still matters. Let's love like he still does. Let's be a people who love as Jesus loves, who live as Jesus lives. See, at the end of the day, it's the last set of blanks, blanks is, it's really actually the whole thing I've been trying to teach you today. I'm going to just sum it up in our one thing for today. That Jesus did not come to start a religion. That he came to start a relationship. A relationship that changes all my relationships. That Jesus came to start a relationship that changes all of my relationships. If you think about it, he didn't come to start a religion called Christianity. He came to correct a religion. For that matter, I think correct all religions. But in doing so, he came to start a personal relationship with God that would be a personal revolution, not a political one. And he called them to love one another. And he said, this is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. You think about how impossibly hard that must have felt for them. You remember when Jesus was crucified? They buried him. 
right? They lost all hope. Hope was gone. Hope was dead. Jesus came back to life. They experienced him in person. And Jesus had already warned them and told them that he was going to leave again, that he was going to ascend to the Father, that he was going to send another one, he called it. He would send another, a counselor, a comforter. He would send his spirit, essentially. He told them to go wait until the spirit came. And in the book of Acts at Pentecost, you get this sense that the disciples knew that without Jesus, they couldn't do any of this. It was as though that these men literally walked with Jesus and knew they were toast without him. Like, how am I, Matthew, the tax collector, supposed to keep on loving Simon the zealot if Jesus isn't with us? It's as though these men had walked with Jesus and knew the power of the love of Jesus. And they knew that they desperately needed Jesus for all of this to work out. Just as though all of that was true. Because it was. It was. And the spirit of Jesus came at Pentecost. And these men went and they preached all over the world of their day. And he transformed them. But he transformed them by their love, that that mercy, grace, love that he spoke of when he said, I desire mercy. But the word mercy is much richer. The bottom line here is they had to recognize, and so do we, that Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to start a relationship that changes all our relationships. That's how we avoid the dark underside of toxic religion. I'm in for that. Are you? I want to pray that for your life and mine. And I always end with two prayers. The first is a prayer of salvation. The second, a prayer of application. If you need Jesus today, all you've got to do is pray with me and ask. And he will forgive you just like he did Matthew, just like he did Simon. That he will forgive You just pray it, just like this. Maybe you would pray with me. You'd say, dear Jesus, I confess my sins. And I admit that I need you. That I am not righteous. But I am a sinner. And so Jesus, please forgive my sins. I believe that you died on the cross for them. I believe that you rose again and are alive today. And I believe that I need you to challenge my deepest assumptions. Fill me with your love and make me like you, Jesus. Jesus, I need you. I believe in you. I ask you to be my God. Pray in Jesus' name. If that's you today and you prayed just now, man, we'd love to know that. We'd love to celebrate with you. We'd love to talk more about what it means to be a part of the family of God. Maybe you can let me know after service. You can let me know on the communication cards that Julie mentioned earlier. You can let me know by filling out a digital communication card online. You can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. But let us know. And if you need... (laughs) to lean in today to the relationship that changes all our relationships. If you need this applied to your life, maybe you would echo this prayer with me as a person who's already followed Jesus and pray like this. Jesus, thank you 
for all we've explored in your word about detoxing our souls. Jesus, continue to remove what's sinful in me. I confess that I can't do any of this. Love, mercy, grace, servanthood. I can't do any of this without you. And I commit as the Harvest family that I will love people far from God. That I will reject the kind of religion that turns your stomach and rejects anyone you care about. I will reject that. That I will live for your kingdom come, not mine. And I ask that you give me the transformation I need to love those who are very different from me. Jesus, as a church, we commit that we'll be united in what we're for. Our common love for you. And we pray that as a church, your heart would always be on display. Please, Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. I'm so glad you guys are here today. His grace is so good. We're going to sing and close in worship today. Maybe you'd sing along and let this minister to your soul as well.